Welcome to Hometown Alaska. Often on this show, we focus on issues in Anchorage, my hometown. Today, we're looking at another hometown in Alaska, Cake, a community of about 540 people in Southeast. I'm your host, Ann Hillman, and today's guests are the hosts of the podcast, A Piece of Cake. And I'd love it if you would each introduce yourselves, please. Mona. Hi, Ann. I'm Mona Ivan. Hi. Podcaster and Cake. <laughs> and Sarah. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for having us. Um, what what a treat. My name is Sarah Campen, and I grew up in Sitka, and I live now um, on Tosta, or Lemager Island, in Icy Street, outside Gustavus. And I really love the community of Cake, um, and have just really loved getting to partner with Mona on this podcast. Well, thank you both very much for being here. So, Mona, you grew up in Cake. Could you describe it for the people who've never been there, please? Hmm. Describe Cake for people who haven't grown up here. It is a very interesting, beautiful community, right smack dab in the middle of southeast Alaska on an island. The majority of the uh, community members are Clinket because we are in Clinket country. We are bordered by the south with um, the Haidas and the Simsian. And it's just a beautiful, small Alaskan community that we want to share. Sarah, you've been visiting the community for years. What was it like the first time you went there? Oh, I mean, Cake is one of my very favorite places in Alaska. I've... um, been to actually not that many communities across the state, but a lot of communities in Southeast Alaska, just through growing up here and living here. And um, yeah, I really love the community of Cake. You're on an island, um, but there's also a scattering of small islands out in front of town. And you can look um, west and north towards Bar- the mountains of Baranoff Island that are usually snow capped. Um, and some of my favorite people live in cake um you know like mona said it's a predominantly Tlingit um, community and then there's you know people who are haida and simshian and uh, filipino and caucasian and um yeah it's just a really cool mix of people and a really special place what was it like when you first got there when you were first starting to build relationships um Mona, you could probably uh, add to this, but, you know, one of the things that I really love about Cake is that there's a particular pace of life in the village that's different than in Juneau, where I was living at the time. Um, So one of the things that I had to learn when I was showing up in Cake at first was to slow my roll a little bit, (laughs) you know, and slow down and spend time with people. Um, And that's something that I've really appreciated. Nice. So, Mona, I've heard a lot that cake has changed significantly over the years. Can you describe a little bit like what it was like when you were young versus what it's like now? How has it changed? Well, um, back in the late 1900s, when I was growing up here, um, the industries, the predominant industries were fishing and logging that um, brought up a lot of you know, money into the area. We had fishing boats that were doing well. We had a functioning cannery um, and then a cold storage and they were doing well. They were catching lots of lots of fish and sending it out. People were employed. The families, you know, were, were growing. 
um, bustling. We were a really, really bustling, constantly moving, constantly awake, which is probably where we got the nickname, the town that never sleeps. So it was a very, very active community. The changes are the fishing industry has slowed down so much. Our cannery and cold storage no longer um, operating. And the logging industry has pulled off of our island. So we're finding different ways and, and growing within our community, finding different ways to you know, be more immersed in our culture because, it, you know, we're bringing it all back. What's been there, we're bringing it back out into the open. We're sharing with um, our youth on a yearly day-to-day kind of instance where we are, you know, just reawakening all of our memories of being our Clinkett communities that have been here for thousands of years. And Is that part of the goal with the podcast that you both host? So you host a podcast called A Piece of Cake, spelled K-A-K-E, for those of you listeners who are looking it up right now. Was that part of the goal of creating this podcast? For me, um, one of the things, I've I've always been interested in the oral histories because I don't know if that's in the genetics or what, but that is um, the way that the Native people here all the Native people seems like um, carried their history with them through time as by oral storytelling. And uh, the more I heard about it, the more it just made sense. So one of the things that I wanted to do, and it came to light after, um, you know, some of my family passed away and I realized that all the stories that they had to share we're never going to be shared when they passed. And that was that was like a whole new heartbreak for me. So I really wanted, I was really looking for different ways to, you know, try and capture all those stories that our people had, not just my family, but all, all of our people in our community. And um, one of my sisters was, well, she still is addicted to podcasts and she introduced them to me. So I was like, oh my goodness. This is the way. Now I need to find out the how. And that's where Sarah came in. Yeah. Sarah, how did you become part of the how? Well, you know, I can say I, I'll just give a little shout out to KCAW public radio station, Raven Radio down in Sitka. My mom is an avid listener and supporter of the radio station. So, I mean, I kid you not, 12 plus hours a day, every single day, I was listening to the radio. And I think that really um, developed in me a, a real love of storytelling, a real love of podcasting and radio and the audio medium. Um, and I've always just really loved it and loved that um, and wanted to get into it. And so, you know, Mona and I had already been friends for at least a decade by the time we started talking about this idea, but, you know, I had really had in the back of my mind that I wanted to learn how to do the production and the technical work of putting together a podcast. And then Mona, um, really had this great idea for, for recording stories with community members and cake. So it was a really nice um, 
combination of interests. And then, you know, more recently, we have entered into an official partnership with the organized village of Cake, um, which is the tribal government um, in Cake. And that is really cool, too, because, you know, what some of the goals that uh, the executive director, Don Jackson, has shared line up really well with what you said, Mona, about a real desire to record histories and stories from elders before they pass away and to share those. And then also from youth, too, and other community members and to be able to have those in, um, to share them, you know, publicly, but then also have archives. So the stories that we record, we usually take um, clips of interviews that we create into podcasts, but then we also um, share or we record the full interviews. And with the permission of the storytellers, those are placed in the tribal archives um, of the organized village of cake. And that feels like a really a really cool thing that we're able to do right now. That sounds like an incredible asset that the community is going to have, yeah, long into the future. So let's jump straight into some bits of the podcast. Let's bring people to Cake via your all's work. It seems like a good idea to start with the first one with Mike Jackson. Um, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about what we're about to hear? Well, this was our second episode. So I think our first episode is called Piece of What? <laughs> um, and that's a, a good introduction for people um, if they want to hear a little bit more about the thinking that was going into creating the podcast and what Mona and I were hoping um, for it to become. And then our next episode is called Sweetest Town in Alaska. And it's an interview with Mike Jackson Um And this clip that we're going to play is a short little clip where he was explaining to me um, how the name cake came to be. Um, And because there's cake, but there's also Keek Kwan. And he explains the difference between those two names um, and gives a little bit of that history. Keek Kwan makes up all the different families, the clans that make up cake. So cake is the exact um, meaning of uh, of cake because the post office wanted to know a name that they can write out in English. Um, the postmaster, a guy named Carl Kerber, Ernest Kerberger, couldn't spell out cake, and he didn't know how to do it. So the old man, our great grandpa told him, just say cake. And he started laughing and he said, well, that's the sweetest town in Alaska. You spell it with a cake. Mike, do you know when that was? When when was that postmaster making that decision? Yeah, Ernest Kerberger came in here in 1896. 1896. So... Does anyone still use the original name or does everyone just say cake? I guess a question for you, Mona. Well, um, as we're revisiting all of um, these stories and getting, you know, we're sharing it amongst ourselves, more and more we are returning to Tijuan. All right. I'd be interested to learn how many communities around the state are doing that. So that's a little bit about how Tijuan got its name. 
The next clip I'd like to jump into helps bring people into the day-to-day life of folks in Cake, which is many places revolves around food. And so this next clip is with Mike's daughter, Dawn, who you mentioned earlier. Sarah, do you want to set us up a little bit or should we just jump straight in? Um, Sure, I can set us up a little bit. So this is an episode from our second season. And close listeners may be able to tell that our uh, audio technical abilities get much better as we move on from our first couple episodes. And this episode I love because there's a lot of really cool um, ambient sound. Um, we're in Dawn's kitchen and we're jarring dog salmon eggs together and listeners will be able to hear the sound of the eggs rolling around um, and sounds as Dawn is working in her kitchen. Okay, I'm coming to you live from the home of Dawn Jackson and we are about to jar some dog salmon eggs. Dom, could you just introduce yourself and tell us where we are? Kakwan Plinket Sayi, Blitha Khenak, Don Jackson Yukat Dusak. Kakwan is my name in Shlingit. Don Jackson is my English name. I'm from Chaihit of the Sagwiti clan here in Cake. Arkeek. I am child of the Kacheti and a grandchild of the Dakdainton. And you're in my house. We're listening to her dishwasher. And right now, Dawn is washing some dog salmon eggs. They've already been cooked. Could you just talk about the process of cooking them? Well, I was lucky. Um, the, well, these came from Ensara, the, um, the hatchery um, from Hidden Falls. And my dad just happened to grab them because he knows how much I love these eggs. And it was already bagged up two gallons and they're already out of the skein and the skein is what usually is usually around the eggs in the salmon so the skein's already off they were pretty like ready to what do you call it spawn so they're out of the skein and they get loose when they're out of the skein like this so they're a lot easier to clean i'm just rinsing off you know bits and pieces um because nobody likes to see cloudy cloudy jars of eggs with the broken like broken eggs that can happen sometimes. I just like pretty eggs in my jars. So that's what I'm doing right now. These eggs fill up a whole kitchen mixing bowl and they're just this beautiful kind of light tan pink color. They've been cooked, so they're not the same color as raw eggs. They're a a lighter kind of softer color and they look like uh, little marbles. They're pretty good size or maybe quarter inch in diameter. Don, do you know why people like to eat dog salmon eggs um, as opposed to the eggs from other salmon? It's because of the size. Like these are literally the largest size of eggs out of all the salmon. Um, this is also what they use for um, fermenting, what they call uh, kahak or stink eggs. In fact, my mom has some in the fridge that are slowly aging. They put it in the fridge after before they left on a business trip, so it wouldn't ferment so fast. Um, so it's slowly fermenting in the fridge, and it's a dark brown. So stink eggs are fermented dog salmon eggs. It is 
so hard for me to picture Sam and Egg being hard enough to sound like that. So that was pretty cool to hear. Dawn is, she's she's caring for these eggs and cooking up these eggs. Um, Mona, how common is it? Do a lot of people still gather and collect salmon eggs or other local foods in cake? Yes. As a matter of fact, it is um, our way of life here. It's something that, you know, we continue to fight for um, just because it's turned into something that we have to fight for in order to do. Um, but we... One of the reasons why um, we took a little bit of a hiatus from our podcast right now currently is because, you know, it is harvesting season. Uh, spring, summer, and fall are the times when we're able to harvest the majority of what we like to eat for the rest of the year. So it takes time to do in the spring, you know, we're starting to look at all the uh, shoots and the the new growth on the different types of plants that are coming up. And part of the stories of um, the plants in spring are, you know, they're full of nutrients and it doesn't stick around long. So we have to get out there and harvest as soon as we can to make the most out of what we have. And then going from spring right into summer, you get into all the different types of fish that are returning. And once um, we have different ways of harvesting each of them, as well as preserving each of them, there you can fresh pack it, which is goes right directly from the water into the jar, into the cooking, so that you can have it later on in different ways as well. Or you can put it in the smokehouse. You can um, cut it up into strips or smoke it um, in whole fillets. Um, and then you figure out the ways that you're going to preserve that. If they're strips, you put them in jars. You can put them in jars as well, or you could freeze them. There's so many different ways that you can do each type of fish, whether it be coho, whether it be dog salmon, whether it be king salmon, sockeye, halibut, all the different types of fish. We have different ways of preserving, and they're all. Let me just say they're all individually delicious. But um, we take advantage of the time when those are available for the harvesting and the preservation. We don't, we can't, we don't do it on our time. We do it on their time. And that's, you know, one of the things that we um, try to pass on to our youth every year for every, every time that we're working on um, something. It's not on our time. It's when it's available. And in order to take the most advantage of it and reduce waste, we have to do it promptly. So everything around us is tried to be used in the most resourceful, you know, sustainable manner so that we don't over harvest and, you know, we don't take any more than we need. Thank you for sharing that. We are going to take a quick break and then we will be back with more of our hometown conversation about the hometown of cake on FM 91.1 Alaska Public Media.
Welcome back to Hometown Alaska. I'm your host, Ann Hillman, and today I'm speaking with Mona Yvonne and Sarah Campen about another Alaska hometown, Cake, and their podcast, A Piece of Cake. So, Mona, you are just speaking a lot about the importance of harvesting and gathering and following the timeline that that nature and the planet sets versus the timeline that we as humans set. And when you started that conversation, you started off by saying that you really need to keep fighting to be able to to do that. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you meant, please. Sure. Well, as as I said before, you know, the Clinket community and all of our ancestors have been on these lands for thousands of years. The only way that we've been able to live here for thousands of years is that we've been able to harvest in a sustainable manner, meaning, as I mentioned before, also that we did not take more than we needed to in order to live here. We did not over harvest any of the plants or the animals or the fish in the sea. And we were able to live a very rich life here ever since statehood and, you know, joining the rest of the great U.S. of A., we've had other people who actually don't even live in Alaska, much less live in the areas that we live in, telling us how much we can take of what this, that, and the other thing in order for it to be sustainable. When um, we as the Native people in this area, which is like the Native people in every area in Alaska, We know a lot about our resources. We know a lot of how much, you know, we use and how much we need to take in order to keep everything coming back in a a number that we can live with, that they can live with. The one thing that we did not see is the amount that outside interests are taking, meaning all the big... Um, fishing industries, uh, sport hunting industries, sport fishing, everything that's being taken out of here by people who don't live here. That was a variable that was not cons- had to, did not have to be considered at the time. So <clears throat> we're all we're all still trying to make sure that our people are able to use the resources that we've lived with for all these thousands of years while also taking into the account that everything that every everybody outside of the communities is taking. So it's a fight. It's a fight for balance. I understand. Sarah, did you want to build on this conversation? Well, you know, I wanted to just chime in and say that the tagline for A Piece of Cake, the podcast, is community, culture, and a whole lot of food from Kich Kwan. And I think that that really speaks to um, to the heart of the podcast. We certainly talk about multiple different topics and issues, but we oftentimes come back to food and to practices and ways of harvesting, techniques for traditional harvesting and food preparation, um, because it it is so important, and as Mona talked about, is still so much at the heart of the community, and and that's one of my I love talking to people about food and learning how people are harvesting and processing traditional foods, and I think that that's a really special thing that our podcast can share, um, both with community members in Cake in Kihuan, 
Um, and then also elsewhere too, across the state, across the world. Um, it's really fun to listen to. That's actually a great segue into our next clip, which is talking about seal hunting um, and kind of how about gathering food is about more than just the food at the end, but it's all about relationships as well. Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the clip with Rosalind before we play it? Well, sure. And I maybe will ask Mona to chime in here as well, um, because Mona knows Rosalind Shaquani uh, or knew Rosalind Shaquani a little bit more than I did, but we I'll just say that we had the opportunity to sit with her. Um, this is about five years ago now, actually, and record an interview with her that we talked about a lot of things, but she tells a really beautiful story about going seal hunting with her parents when she was a child. And and she also just passed away recently. So it is really special for us to have this interview with her that we can share with her family and that we can share through the podcast. Mona, was there anything you wanted to add to that introduction? Not really. Um, other than she is the sweetest soul that you ever met and you will hear it in her voice. Once a while, we take Alberta out with us. She. She's my friend that I sit by at the senior lunch. One time she went with us and we were seal hunting. And my dad was making the seal sound. And we were talking then. We had catalogs there to cut out paper dolls. <laughs> and we stopped, and Alberta said, What's that? What's going on? I said, I don't know. And we looked out the tent, and my dad was on a beach, and he was talking there and thinking. And my mom, I told my mom, He's talking to you, and she told me to be quiet. just watching him he'd get up sit down and talk again in Flinket and we'd say, we were telling each other what's he doing you know it took him at least a, oh, a good half hour or longer here he was talking to a wolf that was on a beach and we were saying What's he going to do with it? This wolf was big, but it was skinny. And we were just watching my dad. And my mom said, you guys can come out of the tent if you're quiet. So we start crawling around and we were watching him. And he was sat there and just talked. He wouldn't look at the wolf. He'd just talk, talk and think it and he kept talking to it and, and all of a sudden we saw his hand go up and he let go and he was talking to the wolf again and I think it it took him quite a while to take the bone out of his mouth he couldn't close it it was stuck I don't know how he did it but he, he got it out 
When he got it out, he was talking to it, and the wolf just sat there. I couldn't believe it. That wolf just sat there, and he didn't say, I don't know what he was saying to it. He looked away, and he started moving down towards the boat again, you know, not too scared or bothered. But that wolf got up and went up the woods. Albert and I were there with <laughs> our yeah. mouths open. <gasps> See that? <laughs> we were pretty young, maybe eight, eight years. But that's how he helped that wolf. That's one thing we we were surprised, you know. He was seal hunting and he saw that wolf and he helped it. But what he said to the wolf, I don't know what he said in thinking. I understand it, but I didn't know what he was saying to the wolf. When he came down, he was talking to my mom. He said, poor thing was really hungry, thirsty. He said it was pretty big, he said, but pretty skinny, <laughs> my dad. After that, they started seal hunting again, and we got busy. I learned a lot from my mom and dad, from Lizzie and Chester. That's such a beautiful story. But I actually have to admit that part of what sticks out to me so much about it is in the beginning when she's talking about her friend and she's like, who I sit next to at the senior center right now, this this woman she's been friends with since they were eight years old. What about that story really jumps out to each of you? How about you, Mona? One of the things that um, jumps out at me, and it was more of a reminder. I mean, I, I grew up in my grandparents' house, so I got to hear a lot of stories but it brought back memories of um, fish camps. Um, my grandfather, uh, when he was growing up, they had fish camps too. They would leave their, the community. Basically what happened was cake was like, because the entire town emptied out in the spring and summer as each of the families went to these different places that they set up and started their gardens for the year set up their households so they could harvest the fish and work on the fish. They usually had um, smokehouses in these individual places and they would work on work on the different um, fish that were returning at the different times and then, you know, preserve it like I had mentioned before. So her talking about that and being on the boat was, it was a nice reminder that, you know, that's exactly the way life was for the entire community here at one time. Is that how life is for some people still? No. Cake is now the year-round place. They'll go out camping, but they will not actually um, set up their gardens in the different areas, um, the different bays, and they won't spend the two to three two to three months in these different areas like they used to. Now, the amount of boats that we have and um, the ability to, you know, get there without manpower. Now we can use machine power. It's easier to go out to these different places to harvest and then bring it back here 
it just makes more sense. Of course, everybody's addicted to, you know, their social medias as well. <laughs> so do you have any reflections on the story from from Rosalind? Well, um, yeah, I thought, well, gosh, I just love that story. Um, it's one that I've listened to many times and I keep coming back to. And I think for me, one of the most vivid images is the image of, in my mind, of Rosalind and her friend Alberta playing with paper dolls in the bow of the boat under a tent, like a canvas tent. You know, I just, I just love that idea of, of those little girls doing that and then watching her dad and the wolf on the beach. I, I think too um it made me want to just describe to people a little bit about how the podcast works so Mona and I do sit down interviews with community members and cake and usually those interviews are pretty wide ranging and they're an hour plus long and then what we do is we take clips from those interviews which I think I mentioned before and to make a podcast um, Mona and I sort of start by introducing the person to people, to listeners, and then we play clips from the interview that we've done. And then we spend some time at the end kind of digesting it. And I, I really love that format because I think it's, um, it's both really fun, but it also helps people connect to stories from elders or stories from the community uh, about things that they may not understand. So I think in the, the episode um, called Seal Hunting that features Rosalind's story, um, then after it, we talk a little bit more about seal hunting and about the process of it so people can and can learn more about that. Um which I, you know, I think is just really fun. And I think people will enjoy it. And then one more thing to add too. So Mona had mentioned earlier that we were on a bit of a hiatus. We, um, we stopped putting out new episodes this summer so that we could focus on um, our own harvesting and processing, just like Mona was saying, but also so that we could focus on, doing more interviews with people. And so we just spent about two weeks in July um, doing a bunch of really awesome interviews in Cake um, that are going to make a bunch of really cool new episodes that will probably come out starting sometime this winter. We have time for one last short clip, and it's about an elder reflecting on her childhood, but it's really quite relevant today. Sarah, would you like to explain a little bit about this one? Sure. This is an, one interview that we did with one of my very favorite people in the world, Kanak, Dr. Ruth Demert. And um, she is a really amazing woman. We have a couple of episodes out with her already where she tells um, different stories. But this episode focuses on the history of the tuberculosis epidemic and how it affected her and her family and the community of cake in particular. Not too much I remember of going to school because I was ill at the time, which is why my grandparents raised me. Can you tell me about that? What What sickness did you have? Well, it began with my mother. Her first marriage was to my father, my biological father, 1935. He had tuberculosis and 
he ruptured and he was bedridden. He passed away hemorrhaging. And my mother had to keep him alive by pulling the blood clots, actually, keep him breathing. She was eight months pregnant with me at the time when he passed away. And I guess my biological father was worried about my mom. He promised me to my grandparents. So when I was eight months old, my mom turned me over to my grandparents. And I grew up from eight months old till I got married, grew up with them. While I was still growing up, I, I remember being sick. I remember there was a big boat that came in. It was outside, anchored outside of Cake. We were taken out there by the boatloads. I think the boat's name was the Hygiene. <laughs> First traveling clinic boat that we saw. You were able to get your x-rays on there because back then tuberculosis was, was really bad among our native people. People were dying. In fact, most of my grandmother's children passed away from tuberculosis. Lots of people are dying from it. That was a that was a pretty powerful clip, especially given that we've now all lived through a different type of pandemic. Mona, I was wondering if you could reflect on what it was like to be in cake during the height of the pandemic. I guess we're talking about this COVID, the most recent yes, COVID. <laughs> it was interesting. It was um, so I have a, a, a brief history in, in the medical field, meaning I was a community health aide here in Cake, and one of my projects, and even when I went to back to um, the school, one of my projects, and one something that's always fascinated fascinated me is the tuberculosis pandemic. And the fact, you know, that it's still around today and hearing Ruth talk about that, it brought back a lot of those memories. And a lot of the things that happened during COVID, although it seemed rather shocking, um, especially for the younger crowd, um, the younger population, it was actually no less than what was expected, or at least what I expected. And I'm sure... Um, the, 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 the overall feeling um, for the older population was, you know, it's to be expected. This is what will need to happen. Whereas the youth were, had never gone through anything like that. So they didn't know how to, how to, to uh, process all that information, much less all of a sudden the, the lack of movement throughout the globe, really. So the the situation in Cake, we followed we followed the exact same protocols that um, everywhere everywhere else in the state was following at the time. I mean, you know, maybe we made our best decisions and trying to um, minimize the exposure to our community members, and it worked. It worked as as good as could be expected, but it also didn't work in that overall. We limited our exposure, but limited does not mean kept it out. So we did end up with COVID in our community. It was different. And that was, you know, you could feel the difference. We got through it like every other community. Thank you to both of you for being on Hometown Alaska today. We just heard from Mona Ivan and Sarah Campen. 
who are the hosts of the podcast A Piece of Cake, spelled K-A-K-E. You can find it on any podcast app, or you can find the link on our website, alaskapublic.org. Listen to a few episodes and then rate it to help others find it. And stay with us for State of Art on FM 91.1, Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media, this is State of Art. Welcome to State of Art, your weekly dose of Anchorage Arts and Culture. I'm Ammon Swenson. Coming up, we'll hear music from Anchorage's Bethlehem Shalom. But first, I wanted to learn more about the Alaska Historical Society, so I'm joined by David Ramser, president of the board for the organization. I'll let him explain what they do. The Society is Alaska's only statewide nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of Alaska history, the exchange of ideas and information about history, and the preservation and interpretation of historical resources in Alaska. We operate a website where we uh, hold and distribute a lot of historical information about Alaska, and we produce two publications, a quarterly newsletter, which I'm also the editor of these days, and a twice-a-year journal, which is more of an academic journal with longer articles about Alaska history and book reviews about uh, the many, many books that are published every year about Alaska history. What can you tell me about the history of the Alaska Historical Society? It's been around for uh, many decades. I can't tell you exactly how long. Uh, There's a 15-member nonprofit board Most of the board members are what I'd call professional historians, archivists, archaeologists, anthropologists. But then there are a number of us who are involved in uh, public service from various capacities who are interested in history. So it's it's a diverse mix of folks who serve on the board. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the website for a bit. You did mention that that's one of the many things you kind of uh, maintain and put out there. But um, it seems like a great resource for people interested in Alaska history, obviously. Uh, There's relevant information to just the casual reader, to teachers, to researchers. Is there anything on the website that uh, you think is a particularly good resource for anyone to check out? We have a feature on the website where we print, I think, every day – Uh, what happened in Alaska history on this particular day. So I think people would find that of particular interest. We also, in addition to our publications, we weigh in on uh, public policy issues that are relevant. For example, there was a big controversy not too long ago about monuments and statues of people of controversial backgrounds and should they Uh, remain in place, like William Seward or Alexander Baranoff or Captain Cook. And so we've weighed into issues like that, which we publish on our website. And then a lot of the more um, uh, thorough research projects that we take on, for example, on the 1971 Native Claims Settlement Act, we did a giant project on the resources related to that act. All of that material is available through our website. 
Well, let's talk about some of the advocacy that the group does. So um, the Alaska Historical Society advocates for history programs and funding. So what does that look like? Or maybe can you give me like a specific example of something that you've advocated for? Um, On funding, we get – well, we, not the society, but Alaska History Resources get some funding from the state of Alaska. There's a small historic uh, office in the Department of Natural Resources. Mm -hmm. So we certainly monitor legislative funding. Uh, I would say it's been um, pretty – it hasn't grown much. It's been pretty stable in the past couple of years. So we advocate for that. Uh, One of our big areas of advocacy is a few years ago, uh, Alaska federal resources were stored in Alaska and they were moved to Seattle where they're stored in a federal archive site there. The Trump administration a couple of years ago proposed moving those resources to California even further than from Alaskans than Seattle. And we joined with historic organizations in the Pacific Northwest to oppose the decommissioning of that archive site. So it's still operating and we're trying to ensure that those resources are digitized so Alaskans who don't have the resources to go to Seattle and camp out down there can access them online. Well, so obviously like with the Alaska Historical Society, there are memberships involved. You know, you can pay a small fee and become a member. What does that look like uh, to be a member of the Alaska Historical Society? It's pretty modest. I think the membership, basic membership is about $45 a year. We have uh, over 400 members and the big membership activity that we do is an annual conference. Um, it's usually a two-and-a-half-day conference. The last couple of years during the COVID pandemic, we did it virtually. This year, we're doing, for the first time in about three years, an in-person conference, October 5th through 8th, down on the Kenai. We try to change venues. One year, we're in Nome. One year, we're in Kenai or Anchorage or Fairbanks. So we're in Kenai this fall. And we'll have uh, over about three dozen presentations on historic issues uh, dealing with Alaska. Of course, because it's on the Kenai, we're focused a little more focusing one day on Kenai history, but also just a number of uh, historical presentations about various aspects of Alaska history. Yeah. Um, I mean, if just kind of the uh, the casual fan of, you know, learning about history were to go, what's what would you maybe kind of say is the, the pitch for that for them to, you know, get them into the door? The best aspect, I guess, of going to one of these conferences? I think the best aspect is the diversity of the history. Even though we come up with a theme, which this year is connections and disconnections in Alaska history, um, we basically will take um, anybody who is qualified and wants to do a um, well-thought-out presentation on Alaska history. Each presentation is limited to about 20 minutes. And so we uh, organize them by panels, and uh, we'll have everything from Russian Alaska history to current history to uh, Anchorage's bid to become a winter city um, Olympic venue. And so that's the uh, breadth of the historical topics that we take up. Yeah, and 20 minutes doesn't sound too bad either. I feel like I could sit through a few of those. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do. Two and a half days of 20 minutes at a time. That's yeah. a lot of history. Uh, in addition to the conference, it looks like there's also a lecture series with plans to start in October. 
What kinds of stuff can we expect from that? This is a brand new initiative and the historic society is frustrated with the level of civil discourse both in our state and in our country. And this is designed at getting some basic facts out there to Alaskans so that we can intelligently discuss public policy issues. The lecture series will be of four parts, uh, kickoff in late October, uh, and the first uh, lecture is on Americanization of Alaska. As we every good Alaskan knows, um, the United States purchased Alaska from the Russians, and at that point in 1867, Alaska became Americanized. There's certainly been lots of benefits to being a part of America. But there are also a number of downsides. Uh, for example, the treatment of native uh, children at Indian boarding schools is just one example. And so we're going to explore those. Each uh, lecture will have three qualified panelists and we'll take questions and answers from the audience. Uh, we have a number of partners. We just received a, a sizable, healthy grant from the Atwood Foundation to help bring people to Alaska. And um, we're also partnering with the Cook Inlet Historical Society to uh, encourage people to attend in person at the Anchorage Museum. Well, kind of maybe uh, as one of our kind of wrap-up questions, you know, you mentioned discussing history to, you know, kind of improve our current dialogue. How can looking at, you know, the past help us progress forward? Um, we believe that if people have a thorough understanding of history, be it Alaska history or U.S. history, uh, we can better discuss and uh, make better public policy decisions. Another example is in just a couple of years, the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence is being celebrated. Well, 250 years ago, Alaska was barely known on the East Coast in the original 13 colonies. But we believe Alaska has contributed enormously to the nation from the only reason America is an Arctic state to uh, the way that Alaska has dealt with um, native land claims very differently than the reservation system and the rest of the lower 48. So those are some of the issues that we'll be discussing at the lecture series and in a couple of years when Americans across the country celebrate the 250th anniversary of our independence. Well, is there anything else you'd want to add about, you know, the historical society or anything you've got coming up? Stay tuned to our website. That's the best place to get information. It's uh, pretty cheap to become a member, and we think the benefits are pretty en enormous. Um, so uh, we're pleased with anybody who's interested and happy to try to answer questions as well from people. That was David Ramser, president of the board for the Alaska Historical Society. And that's all for State of Art. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks to Mona Yvonne, Sarah Campen, and the interviewees from CAKE for being on today's program, which was produced by Ammon Swenson. Find us on the web at alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ann Hillman. Thanks for listening. Hometown Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and do not reflect the underwriters or KSKA. Hometown Alaska's theme song, Lead Dog, is by Kevin Barnett from Eagle River. Learn more about Hometown Alaska and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.